If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the sequel to 1 Thessalonians and go to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, as we continue in our series, Living in the Light of His Return. We're talking about the day of the Lord, and this is the sequel. Now, if you're into movies, you know that blockbuster movies often ride the coattails of the original with a sequel, right? I mean, there's like 16 Iron Mans, amen? If you're a Marvel person. The sequels rarely live up to the original. Now, The Godfather is a different story. That second one is, anyway, that's a powerful stuff there. But, but here's the point. Second Thessalonians is the sequel to the first, but it does not disappoint. And I want to show you that as we look here, and we're going to skip the salutation, get right to verse 3, and listen carefully to the verbiage here. This is a different Jesus than the one who came at Christmas time, or even the one who rides in uh, at the Passover. This is Jesus, the Avenger. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your, look for the plural, persecutions and in, again, plural, afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction or ruin away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled amongst all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And all God's people said. That's powerful stuff there, isn't it? We are talking about the expansion of the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. Not lowly on a donkey, but powerfully on a war horse. Revelation 19 describes this. He's coming as an avenger. The first time he came to save the lost. The second time he comes, it'll be to settle the score. In this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to greatly encourage these suffering Thessalonians and then remind them of this, the dreadful days that are yet to come, which wasn't just true of them. This is for us. These are dreadful days. We may very well have entered into them. And the demonic man, better known as the Antichrist, that's chapter 2, leading to Jesus' show-stopping return. And he's going to finish in chapter 3 with a word to the church then and to us today. But for the moment, chapter 1, 
where Paul encourages you and I and our ultimate vindication and Jesus' ultimate validation. And he gives to them and he gives to us three great and awful expectations. And somebody asked me earlier, no, by awful, do you mean bad? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. But by great, I mean good, wonderful. So it's a bit of a mix here. And you will find yourself in one of these two categories amongst these three points. The first thing I want you to note is that God reserves his greatest praise for those who endure righteously during difficult times. That's pretty clear here. No other church that Paul wrote suffered like the Thessalonians did. And yet we're not told how. A lot of strong verbiage that's used here. Suffering, affliction. The word affliction you see here means pressure, okay? And really fewer things encourage me as a pastor than to see God's people growing in their faith in the face of affliction. And in fact, we're told in verse 3, they were increasing in their love for one another in spite of the affliction. Now in verse 4, it's interesting what Paul said. Just look at it again in verse 4 where he says, he says, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. If you've been with us in our study in, chapter, in, the, in the first letter, in the original, 1 Thessalonians, Paul said that the people were coming to him and boasting about them. Now he's turned it around. I'm boasting about you before the churches. And there is something undeniably powerful about those who hurt in a Christ-honoring way. And I know many of you have been there, are there, and most of us will be there in one way or another. And it gives me great joy. It gives the people around you great joy when you suffer righteously, when you endure righteously. And he even says that at the end of verse 5. He says, in fact, he's speaking in verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The antecedent to this is, is their righteous endurance. Righteous judgment coming at least in part because of the righteous endurance of the saints there in Thessalonica. He doesn't praise them because they're great soul winners. They were that. Or that they had great theological strength and albeit young, they had that as well. But for their, end of verse 4, enduring. So, how are you enduring? I'm not asking you what you're enduring. I'm asking you how you're enduring. I think sometimes the silences of Scripture are as profound as the Scripture itself. We are not told, we were, ne- we were never told in any of these epistles how the Thessalonians were suffering. I think that's for you and me. It doesn't matter how you're suffering. It doesn't matter how you're Enduring. Are you enduring? And are you doing it as unto the Lord? Are you righteously enduring? By the way, by the second century, give or take, uh, Christianity by then was a clear, was, not, was no longer just a subset to Judaism. The Roman Empire would put up with Christians as they put up with the Jews until the Christians became a, no longer a subset but a distinct entity, as indeed we are, from Judaism. And that's when 
the Romans began to tamp down. And they would come in, sometimes with a legion, into a town. If a certain town they suspect Christianity was taking a foothold, they would sweep into that town, set up basically a portable altar. Seriously, this is what they would do. And they didn't make the, the townspeople do, jump through hoops, give up all their belongings, ransack their homes, nothing like that. In fact, it was, it was pathetically simple. They would set up this altar, and they would ask them to put a pinch of incense on the altar, as if to say, Caesar is kurios. That means Lord. And that's exactly how they would say it. Caesar is kurios. Caesar is Lord. Just with a pinch of incense. That's all they had to do. Why do I tell you that? Because the very first town we know of, the very first city we know of in the archaeological historical records where that took place was Thessalonica. It's the first place it took place. And the sad reality is that history tells us a lot of them gave in. I mean, what, I mean what's the big deal? A pinch of incense? I don't really mean it. One of my favorite doctrines that the Reformers gave us is the doctrine of the, of the perseverance of the saints. Have you ever heard of that one? And the famous tulip? I love the expression, the perseverance of the, of the saints. That's a rock-solid biblical expression. It's better than eternal security. It's better than the security of the believer. The, 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 the Reformers understood, if you are a child of God, you will suffer persecution. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, will get pressure, will be opposed. And the Reformers understood that we, at the same time, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you will persevere. You'll get through it. And you will have to go through it. In verse 7, as he, as he begins to refer to the return of Jesus, he says one of the reasons is that to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. I love that word, relief. It's, it's the Greek word, anison. You, those of you who are older, you remember the old aspirin called anison? You used to sell it. That's the word here. It just means relief, which is what so many of us just so desire, just some semblance of relief. But many of you would take a headache over the pain you're going through right now. And God wants you to know that he knows. And he wants to remind you. He knows your hurt. And your ultimate pain relief is coming. As we've said many times, you're not going through anything that the resurrection can't take care of or the return of Jesus. I'll take that. Verse 6 says, God will repay. Do you see that there? That's exactly what it is. He's going to repay. That's the word. And you're more familiar with vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, right? But I get it. When, you're, when you have to endure, when it's really, really hard, you are tempted to ask yourself, really? <laughs> will he really is he really going to repay my detractors, my persecutors, those who speak against you, God, against me, against my faith in Jesus? Yes, that's the answer here, right? Some of you have heard the expression, 17th century expression, revenge is a meal best served. Yeah, you probably heard that in a movie somewhere. It's true. 
And well, God doesn't act in revenge. That's a personal thing. He, he acts in vengeance. That's a righteous, uh, that's, that's a justice kind of a thing. The point is still valid. God determines our timetables and theirs. Amen? I, I read somewhere about the Christian, a Christian and an atheist. Both of them are farmers living right next to each other. As it turned out, the weather systems were such that year that the atheist got more timely rains, had more of a bumper crop than the Christian who just, just barely got, you know, got by. So the atheist very snidely said to the Christian, I, I thought it paid to be a Christian. To which the Christian replied, it does. But God doesn't always pay his people back in October. <laughs> Meantime, we endure. Remember the story of Joseph. So here is this hated son, favored son, hated brother, sold into bondage, down into Egypt. He goes from bad to worse. He goes from Potiphar's house down into a prison, prophesies, <laughs> stays in the prison and languishes for two more years until God, through a series of circumstances, takes him from the pit to the pinnacle. He goes from second charge of all of Egypt he has a family, he's got a couple of kids, and one of them, his name is Ephraim. You remember that? Ephraim, whose name means fruitful. And here's how Joseph himself described it. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's what God will do to you. If you suffer, if you endure righteously. Last week, Tom Rayner, who does lots of data, writes book. He's sort of a statistician for the church. And uh, he, he basically sent a mass email telling all the pastors and all the evangelical churches, here's what you got you to expect. Post-COVID, you're going to have 20 to 30% of your people will not return. 20 to 30%. Yee, hope he's wrong. Now, I don't know if he's right or not, but my sense is that the true church that endures righteously will come out stronger. And if Jesus tarries, if it's a while before he returns, men will write about these days, you know that, right? Books, dissertations, the whole nine yards. But God's praise will not be for the church's defiant, fighting for their rights. It will be for those who endure righteously because that's to whom he reserves his greatest praise. Believe it. Now, secondly, I said these are great and awful expectations. Here's the awful. Secondly, God reserves his greatest judgment for those those of you here, those of you watching online who don't know God and do not obey his gospel. What a way to put it, by the way. Who are these people going to be judging? He gives you the two categories, those who don't know God and do not obey the gospel. It's there in, where is that, verse 8? Yeah, there it is. So you got two different categories of people, both heading in the same Direction, judgment. Only one kind of obedience will, only one. 
and only one kind of obedience will save you. Obedience to the gospel. Obeying the gospel. And why does Paul talk like this? This is not the first time or the last that the Apostle Paul would describe the gospel uh, in, in sort of an overflow kind of way. What, what results as a result of the gospel? Obedience and fruit. Throughout the book of Romans, he does it. In fact, uh, I want you to see in the second chapter in verses uh, uh, 9 and 10, look what he says. This is, the context is that of the Antichrist. Here's what he says. The coming of the lawless one, that's the coming Antichrist. We'll get to him in a couple weeks. Is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Watch this. Because they refuse to repent, refuse to believe, refuse to trust Jesus. What's he say? Refuse to what? Say it. Love the truth. And be what? Saved. Why does he talk like this? Paul refers to being saved as both obeying the gospel and loving the truth. Yes, salvation is by grace through faith, but it always produces evidence. It always produces obedience and love to those to whom it really comes. And during the big shakeout of COVID and whatever else comes out comes in the next year or two or five as we live in these last days, the evidence will be in those of us who have truly obeyed the gospel and really loved the truth. And how long will they be judged? Did you see the word there? Verse 9, eternally. You see it? Eternal destruction, eternal ruin. Now, let's be honest. Moment of honesty. How many of you do not like the idea of somebody suffering eternally? Raise your hand. If, I mean, that, it kills me every time I think about it. And yet, would you then say, I don't think a God of love, a God of mercy, would ever send somebody to hell forever? Do you want to go to heaven forever? Same context, same Epistle, same sequel, second chapter, one of the last verses, verse 16, here's what it says. Now may the Lord Jesus himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us, what? What kind of comfort? Eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Those questioning whether the, the punishment for Christ's rejectors should be eternal usually don't question whether their comfort should be eternal. It's all eternal. And how will they be judged in this awful expectation? Because I'm talking. You need to listen up because this is, this is some of you right now. You are there right now. Some in this room. This is where you're at this very moment. And watching online, this is where you're at. How will they be judged? The answers are in the words. With affliction, with ruin, and with eternal loneliness. You see it in verses 8 and 9, Jesus coming back with flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, eternal destruction, away, away from the presence of the Lord. You see that? C.S. Lewis said that those going to hell basically will it that way. Here's how he put it. 
there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So be careful what you wish for. You don't want a genuine relationship. I mean, like relationship with God. You want Jesus. I mean, you want Christianity. You just don't, you don't really want a relationship with God. And so it'll be for you for all eternity. This really hit me this last week as I thought about it. You're, many of you, if you're not familiar, uh, make a note of it somewhere to read uh, Luke chapter 16. I think it's verses 19 through 31, this famous story that Jesus himself gave. Because Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And about, he, he talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. It's almost as if a doctrine that awful had to be given over to the Son of God to teach us. And it's the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember it? The rich man goes to hell. He's in bassinos, a Greek word that's just the most excruciating kind of pain you can be in, in flames. And this is what hit me. If you, if you notice that dialogue between him and Abraham across the chasm, remember that? Uh, he, what does he ask for? I, I'll, I'll tell you what he asked for. He asked for relief. He doesn't ask for a relationship. He doesn't want God. He didn't want him in life. He doesn't want him after life, and neither will you. And it'll be your way. And it's an awful way to go. He wanted relief. He didn't want a relationship. Now make no mistake, this will be divine vengeance. The word is even used, payback. Because God doesn't forget I've led a number of time, tours to Israel over the years. Hope to do it again someday. And if you were with us, you will remember going to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Remember that? And do you remember going to the Children's Holocaust Museum? That's the most pathetic thing you'll ever walk through in your entire life. Six million Jews were slaughtered by the Nazis in World War II. But 1.5 million of them were just little children. And this entire museum is given over to the children the slaughtered children of the Holocaust. And when you walk into this, you are just directed in the most, the most amazing of ways. As you walk in, you see grainy pictures of the children just coming out. And thousands of lights, illuminations coming at you. And all the ways you make your way through that museum, you hear in Hebrew, in Yiddish and in English, the names, the names, the names, the names, all the names of those children. It's as if the Jews are saying to us as we walk through, we will not forget. We will not forget. Let me tell you something. Neither does God. There's not one injustice ever done that will not be meted out, will not be dealt with by the living God who knows everything. And the word he uses for eternal destruction is, you see that in verse 9, is, the, is a word that when you see destruction, think 
ruin. That's what it means. It means ruin. And this is how, this would be an operational definition of it. Losing everything worth living and making life worthwhile. That's what hell's going to be. Utter ruin. Everlasting, wait for it, purposelessness. Just think that way. Everlasting purposelessness. A number of years ago, I was in a Hardee's restaurant. We were closing the place down. Better than being in a bar. <laughs> About 8 o'clock at night. And the, uh, the manager came up to our table, and uh, he tried to sell us the leftover chicken at half price. Pretty good deal, but we didn't want it. And uh, his name was Lynn, and I hadn't met Lynn before. And I just, just instinctively, I looked at Lynn, and I said, Lynn, what's your purpose in life? I will never forget the pathetic reply he gave me. He looked right at my wife and I and said, I don't have any purpose. I'm just taking up space. Amen. Well, some of you are there right now. You have no purpose. You're just taking up space right now. That trajectory will go into eternity. And you will suffer eternal purposelessness. I entered into a conversation with Lynn, Bible studies, and he came to know Christ as his Savior. And then he moved away. We lost touch with each other. It was just two years ago. Some of you remember this. I'm walking to the foyer out here, and I look over, I go, Lynn? Been like 30 years. I go, Lynn? He goes, ah, you remember me as his wife. He introduces his family. They're going on for God with purpose, which is what Jesus gives you which you don't have, and some of you watching online, you don't have it. What's your purpose? Do you have any? We're talking about hell here. And he does use coming in flaming fire, and Jesus did talk about Gehenna. Remember that? Eleven times he uses the expression Gehenna, when he talked about hell. Every Jew knew what Gehenna was. Gehenna was the garbage dump right outside of Jerusalem, down in the valley of Hinnom, where sacrifices formerly were made, and it just turned into a garbage dump. And it was the kind of garbage you just kept throwing garbage in there, so it was perpetually on fire, which made it a great metaphor for hell. And he said it's the place where the worm never, what? It never dies. By the way, the word worm there isn't the word for nightcrawler. It's the word maggot. I used to live on an acreage for a few years, and it was on a farm. And if you've been a farmer, you know if you're a farmer, you burn your garbage, right? They, farmers, we go out in the back, there's a big hole there, that just threw the garbage in there. And it was almost all, it was, it was on fire all the time. I remember throwing some garbage in on a hot summer day one day, and the flames were coming up, and the garbage that I'd thrown away a couple days earlier were finally, the fires were reaching the garbage. And I, could, I remember watching the plastic just sort of eat away through the fire and revealed thousands and thousands of maggots. And it was just disgusting. But right away I was arrested by that thought. Hell. Gehenna is a place where the worm never dies. 
you become an undying worm. Your whole life wasted away and forever. Is this what you want? This is why Dante, when he wrote his infernal, said, he put the sign in front of hell that said, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Why? Why? Because hell is purposelessness. It is painful. It is hopeless. It is eternal loneliness. Hell's not some eternal version of animal house, for crying out loud. Where you get together with all your friends, you won't see any of them. And it's a judgment that some of you are facing. And my heart is crying out to God as I preach to you this morning. That some of you would stop faking it. Stop lying to yourself. You're heading there right now. And you just don't even know it or you just won't admit it. Judgment awaits. It's an awful expectation. Finally, back to the great expectation. God reserves his greatest glory for those of you who love Jesus and long for his appearing. Look at it again. Put it up on the screen for you. When Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. What a contrast to the others. Because our testimony to you is believed. Look at those words. Just look at them. The very event that will cause Christ's rejectors to run for the caves, but Revelation says they won't be able to hide. And it tells us why they run for the caves. They don't want to be with God. They want to get away from his presence. Do you understand what I mean? If you die in your sins, you die in your sins, and you die in your sins, in your sins, apart from God. And that is awful. What it is that makes heaven heaven is what the absence of makes hell hell. No God. But to those of you who know Christ, this great event that will cause Christ's rejectors to run for the caves will cause you and me who know him to run to him and to marvel forever in, over, and through, and to his glory. It saddens me that some of you are running from Jesus. You're actually running to judgment. It's time to change directions. It's time to change directions. The other night, I was invited over. My wife's been gone for a couple of weeks. Thanks for having me over. Give a bad time. I didn't starve. But a family had me over. A family that just a couple of years ago, atheist, agnostic, ungodly, feminist, hater of God, Their kids greeted me in the foyer of their home and quoted the entire 138th Psalm. And when the gospel came to them through our ministry and studies my son and I had with them, by her own testimony, she said, Oh, Jesus, I come to you and I come running. Which is exactly what some of you need to do this morning. Run to Jesus, who said, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest in the most important part of your being, your soul, where there is no rest 
And you'll have no rest if you die in your sins. These are great and awful expectations. And I'm begging you, those of you who have been faking it for years, stop faking it. This is real. This is awful. And this is you outside of Jesus. And for those of you who know him, oh, the glory. And may God grant to you, by his grace, the ability to continue to endure righteously until you bask and marvel in his return. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you. We thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is both great and awful at the same time. This passage of Scripture that presents to us Jesus in his second coming resplendency, his glory, his power. And oh God, may we meet him as Savior today. There are people in this room right here. You know who you are. You're not saved, and you know you're not saved. There's no obedience to the gospel. There's no love for the truth. There's no presence of God in your life. Please know that if you don't turn directions, if you don't change directions, that will just go into eternity and a forever purposelessness. Don't go there. I beg of you to come to Jesus who urged you to come to him. Change directions. Place your faith in the one who died for you and rose again for you. Trust him today. And God, I pray that you will give spiritual rebar and strength to those who are hurting in any way. Right now, to endure righteously and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.